Today on More Than a Test, we have the pleasure of speaking with Haley Carter. She's a senior associate at Owl Ventures, the largest VC firm for ed tech. But just like one of our guest once told us, you should try to win the Humility Award. It's hard to get her to tell us all the amazing things she's done, including starting one of the biggest ed tech organizations for MBA students. We're really excited to have her here today. And believe me, it's going to be an inspiring conversation about a young woman who's doing a lot for ed tech. Haley, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me today. So we were talking earlier that you are in the OWL offices today and you were running a little late from a meeting. Tell me what, I mean, what is it like to be in the OWL offices? What are you doing on a daily basis? Yeah, so um, it's it's generally pretty quiet in the offices. We have 20 team members of OWL, but we're spread all across the world. So there's only about eight team members in SF. So there's two of us today, um, but it's, it's great chatting with a lot of founders, chatting with their portfolio companies, just really learning about ed tech from all corners of the world. Okay. And so we've had um, Amit on from Owl Ventures before. So we know that you, you're kind of like the VC of EdTech Plus was the way that he put it. But tell me for you, what makes Owl different than other VCs? Yes. Um, I think we're we're at a unique advantage in that we're able to invest at all stages. So we can invest from seed when the company has getting its first users, even pre-seed, all the way to pre-IPO. So it enables us to really partner with the founder at the beginning or even in the middle and kind of stick with them until the finish line and really see them grow to impacting hopefully millions of students and millions of learners all around the world. And for the around the world piece, we can invest globally. So we invested in corners of Africa, Asia, Brazil, Europe, really, really almost everywhere now. So it's it's really remarkable just to be able to, to make that global impact at many different stages. And is there a stage that you like best that you're like, when, when a company is at this moment, that's when I like to get involved or that's when I think their story gets interesting. What's the stage that is like, the fire for you? I think each stage has its perks, of course, with later stage comes more data and more kind of understanding of product market fit and how users are engaging with the product. I do think there is something so exciting about the early stages, kind of that zero to one phase where you there's a big vision of the company and it's still figuring out what the potential of the vision is, where the rooms to expand are, and of course pivots can even happen. So um, I tend to to get really excited about early, but really every stage has its pros and cons, of course. Okay, what's something that's early stages that you're excited about right now? In terms, I mean, they're, they're, what we're seeing a lot, and so it's it's hard to kind of sift out all the noise of AI and education, of course. I think we're seeing a lot in terms of teacher co-pilots and kind of AI tools supporting teachers, which I think ed tech has kind of sit, uh, sat at an interesting dichotomy of either it's supporting students or supporting teachers. And I've, we've been really impressed by seeing how thoughtful founders are and thinking of the teacher first, given that there's just so much data around how teachers have so many papers to grade and so much, so much work on their plate um, that they they can't ever get done and it kind of takes away from their student teacher interaction so we're really excited about some of those solutions okay give me an example of a solution that's really teacher focused i think that's a really interesting example and i don't, I don't think it's something that most people who haven't been in a classroom ever think of right we think of ed tech and kids but tell me about a solution that you've seen that's been really teacher focused that you're excited about. Yeah, I think one uh, one company that that we did invest in, Chiron Learning, kind of sits at that sweet spot of teacher focus because of how it considers the student as well. And and what I mean by that is teachers. We generally, I'm, I'm saying we because I used to be a teacher myself, but there's at least 20 students in a classroom. And it's hard because each student has a different need and they're at a different level across every subject. And so the most effective way to learn is, of course, the one-to-one -one learning, but there's just not enough time in the day. And so Chiron Learning uses AI and is able to kind of facilitate a one-to-one teacher-to-student interaction in a way that can just scale that personalized learning much much, much wider, which, and, and they're thinking about it in a way where teachers are at the forefront. So really listening to teacher feedback in, in piloting with a lot of schools and understanding what teachers need in their classroom. So it's not replacing the teacher, of course, it's just supplementing what teachers can do in a normal day to day. That's awesome. 
Um, I actually haven't heard of it. So I'm going to go ahead and look it up. It must be um, a little bit earlier. All right. You mentioned two things that I want to tap into. The first thing you said was all the noise in ed tech. Um, which one I think is a brave thing for someone who works in an ed tech VC to say. Um, but on one of our episodes, we talked to, um, oh gosh, what was his name? Carl something. Anyways, he told me that the average student will come into contact with 143 different ed tech products during the school year. Um, that number blew my mind. Are you surprised by that? And how much of that would you say is probably something that's great and making them better or learning or helping them learn? That's yeah, I, I love that stat. I feel like we hear similar things and it's it's honestly unbelievable just how many tech solutions inundate teachers and students on a daily and annual basis. I think um, it's interesting because the reason there are so many solutions that exist is because there are so many pain points. And I think there are a lot of solutions that are helpful. And and I think the problem is a lot of them are point solutions solving like one piece of the puzzle. So whether that's like rating for math or literacy and only thinking of like a core subset of a population. And so that's why there are so many solutions. They're all solving a pain point. But when it comes to student and student learning, each student has different gaps, which further would kind of comes to my earlier point of there's always something to assess and always something to teach a student. So um, I'm very confident that a lot of them are creating a lot of change and a lot of impact. It's just the question, at least from the VC's seat, is at what scale can this change and impact be created? And how big can that solution be when it comes to solving the bigger pain points and the pain points that span across many grades, many subjects? I think you have the right optimism that hopefully it's not that there's so many because some of them are messy, but because they're just at like every little dot along the way, right? When you go to the doctor because your knee hurts, right? We don't all just jump in and get surgery. Some of us are going to get physical therapy. Some of us are going to get a band, kind of the same idea, right? There's a lot of different things that can help. Um, so that makes somewhat, that makes sense. And I, and I like that. I'm going to try to think of that because the 143 number terrifies me in some ways of just how much kids are interacting with. And speaking of terrified, um, something else that you alluded to is uh, AI in the classroom. And I think if you, you know, get into the conversations around AI, you can hear everything under the sun. Um, I think I read last week that something like 2000 new AI companies open every day right now. Um, and so I'm just curious, what would you tell teachers? You said you're a former teacher and principals who are looking at all these products, seeing AI, know they should be somewhat skeptical. Like, what would you tell them to be looking for? What, what, what does it mean to really understand AI in the classroom? I think we're, we're all still understanding AI in the classroom. So by no means I'm, I'm an expert here. I think just, and I'm in that learning phase as well, but I, I think for a teacher, it, it's hard because it's really easy to kind of know what curriculum already exists and know what products already exist and kind of stick with that. And I think now is that like perfect pivot point in the, opportunity to learn at the forefront of it, I think is important. Um, so more just taking this opportunity to learn rather than pushing back against it, because I think students adopted it quite quickly. And it's really remarkable just to hear different podcasts of students already using it in writing and learning and research. And so I think if teachers are just open to learning what its capabilities are and, and looking for those solutions that are teacher first and student first and really thinking of how to not evolve what is being taught, but evolve maybe how it's being taught, um, which is exciting in many ways. Definitely nerve wracking as you're touching on, but there's a lot of opportunity. That's awesome. So what you would tell teachers is if, you know, like if they're dabbling in AI, they're getting excited, they want to get interested, obviously they want solutions. I mean, I'm sure any middle school teacher here is grading help and they're like, yes, sign me up. I don't care what it is. <laughs> um, my English teachers used to take like days off to, to, to grade essays. Um, and so what I hear you saying is look for something that feels like it, it, it's made for you. It's not made just to be thrown at the classroom. It's not just, you know, but, but for teachers and they put teachers first. Is that what you would say? Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. It's funny because I think the first time you and I met was at a conference that was aimed at teachers and ed tech. 
um, and, and teachers who wanted to learn more about ed tech. So it's cool that this seems to be like a common thread for you. And so, which kind of brings me to my next question. So you have this amazing job at OWL that I think a lot of people listen and, and, you know, I think I, I wore my Kellogg sweatshirt cause you have an MBA yeah, at Kellogg, exactly. right? Um, so, so do I. <laughs> and, um, and I think a lot of people in getting MBA programs want to work in VCs. I think a lot of people in the classroom have thought about other transitions. So let's talk about you. So you were originally out of college, a kindergarten teacher. Is that true? Or was there something else? I was in consulting at EY Parthenon before teaching. So EY Parthenon, for those who don't know, kind of has a huge education and private equity practice. So luckily it was still kind of in, in the education world through, through that work as well. You went from there to the classroom? Yes. I went from consulting to the classroom. And why did you make that decision? I think I went into Parthenon because of the, the bigger focus on education, but I still felt like there was a bit of a miss in terms of the hands-on impact I could deliver. And when I was debating between Parthenon and potentially TFA after graduation, which I feel like a lot who are in the ed tech ecosystem have a similar mental debate, um, I obviously chose Parthenon, but had always had an itch to teach and to be able to really feel what that direct impact could be um, if you're teaching students day to day. So thought it was a, a great time to to pivot and and glad I did of course learned a lot and very have so much respect for teachers. It's interesting you say that a lot of people that I talk to who leave the classroom and often go back as they say like as much as I loved ed tech I loved the like larger the the larger scale um I missed the direct impact, mm -hmm. the minute to minute, the day to day impact that I knew I was having on kids. And so it's, it's nice to hear you say that as well. So how long did you teach kindergarten? I was a kindergarten teacher for two years. Okay. So my experience with kindergarten teachers is they're one of two things. Either they are diehard kindergarten teachers or they kind of dabble in kindergarten and also do other things. I was someone who taught kindergarten and many other grade levels. Were you a diehard kindergarten teacher or what do you think? Yes. No, I was diehard kindergarten when the um, role opened up. They, they had not listed the, the grade actually because it, it was like a recent um, team change. And when they told me it was kindergarten, I was thrilled because that was kind of the, the, the ideal grade for me. I feel like their brains are like sponges. They have so much to learn and a really key point of learning math and reading. And so I was super excited about that grade from the get-go. Um, so at Amira, we were trying to explain to our engineers, like, why is kindergarten so different? Like, all of Amira works so well in all these other grade levels. And like, we just did a huge redesign around kindergarten and the engineers were like, like, why is kindergarten so different? And so we started telling them the thing about kindergarten is on the first day of school, one kindergartner will show up reading, like they can totally read. And another one will show up with their shoes on the wrong feet. And like, that's the spectrum you're trying to deal with in kindergarten. Do you have any like crazy stories of something amazing or crazy that happened when you were teaching kindergarten? I mean, there are so many stories, could could, could go many which ways. I, I think it really, your description of they show up with very different skill skill levels is just spot on. Um, I had a student who in the first week was writing sentences and basically reading at a second grade level. And it's what was always really inspiring to me is those students either kind of like go on their own ways and kind of just keep racing forward. But I think she at least kind of slowed down and also taught her peers around her and was really thoughtful and kind of sitting by her peers and helping them and sounding out words, I feel like was something that was trickier because she obviously that the pedagogy was less, not there as much, but um, her just sitting with students and then watching us sound out words and then doing it with her peers was really remarkable. So seeing those different skill sets, but also how some of those students with those larger and more expansive skill sets can kind of help grow the, the peers around them. That is really neat. I think so often we see these kids, you know, on the race to, to the top or the race to nowhere, trying to like exceed their peers and that ability to be kind and care about others is really lovely. Um, one of my favorite quotes is when given the choice between being right and being kind, choose kind. And that's what that student sounds like. So she sounds memorable. I'm sure she's off doing wonderful and kind things too. So, so consulting to kindergarten to your MBA, was that next? Yes. Yes, exactly. So I uh, joined Kellogg and I joined with, with the belief that I'd be entering ed tech for, for the long haul after that. So all my admissions essays were about ed tech. So I'm grateful that I landed where I am now, of course. So you knew exactly where you're going. This is a trajectory you've been plotting in some ways. You get a little consulting, a little education, and then you, this is the direction you were headed. Is that true? 
Yeah, I, I think from the early on, I, I minored in education at Dartmouth. You couldn't major. So so minoring was was the kind of highest level of education, of education I guess, there. Um, and I don't know. I just, I think there is such a powerful dynamic of education and its impact and its ability to really just scale opportunities for people. And so have always been pretty set on education being my long-term career and my passion for ed tech kind of got further strengthened by being in the classroom and then having to teach remotely during the pandemic. Teaching remotely five-year-olds definitely um, taught me a lot, but also really emphasized the, the power of ed tech if it's done right. Well, okay. So let's talk about that because a lot of people are in education, into education. And I think I recently read there's something like 2 million teachers in the U.S. in public schools. Um, and then there's all the nonprofits, right? We, we work with things like Gary, Gary Community Ventures and things like that. Um, and then there's curriculum, there's professional development. Why ed tech for you? Like what made you think that this is the solution that you wanted to be a part of? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a personal journey for everyone. I think for me, when I was teaching, it was this hands-on direct impact and it really, it was remarkable and felt really inspiring in many ways to, to be able to have that impact. But I did feel like my days were sometimes limited by, and my impact was limited by the classroom walls. And I saw my students interacting with Dreambox Learning, for example, which is in Owl's portfolio. And, and you can you can actually see them learning pretty directly and see it care. I could see it carry over into their work and just our math lessons and, and knew that that the impact that Dreambox Learning could have could be scaled globally and, and could touch thousands and millions of classroom walls. And I think just seeing the potential of that made me realize that while teaching is remarkable and I, I truly only have the, the best things to say about teachers, I, I was really excited about the opportunity to scale the impact kind of in emerging markets and beyond just one classroom, um, which it's, it's a very different type of impact. It's less hands-on, which I think I'll always miss, but it still has some impact, which is kind of, I think, what a lot of people are looking for and what I was looking for. So you and I entered our MBAs in very different mindsets. I went in saying, I have no idea what I want to do. <laughs> I would like to try out everything. And you knew exactly what you wanted to do. I mean, maybe not OWL, but you knew you wanted to be in ed tech. So what steps did you take when you when you started at Kellogg to kind of forge your path so that you could go where you wanted to go? Yeah, and that's a great question. Um, I think... The, the, the first kind of months of business school are a bit of a whirlwind. I'm sure anyone else listening who's gone to business school know that. So it was just trying to connect with others who had similar passions. Luckily, there are a few other students excited about EdTech at Kellogg. And then I learned about EdTech Focus Venture quite quickly in just the, the first couple of months and really saw that as like a sweet spot of being able to see a lot of EdTech companies hopefully drive impact by partnering with them and also still being in a kind of constant pace of learning about the ecosystem, which I, I really um, am grateful I, I'm able to, to, to do in this seat. And so I started actually interviewing for EdTech Focus VCs in November. So just within a first few months of Kellogg, and then was lucky enough to get the opportunity at OWL in, in um, December, January. And so ever since then have kind of been working with them, which I feel very grateful to, to obviously have had that chance. That's, that's great. So you, you know, went in, you found the people, I feel like this is something we hear often from entrepreneurs on the podcast is find the other people who want to talk about this and don't stop talking about it. Because when you find those like-minded people, one, you can like throw your ideas at them, but two, like they're going to push you to keep going. Was that your experience at Kellogg that you kind of found the people and they were the ones who were like, you know, like, this is what you want to do. Go, go, go. Or did you have that drive yourself? Tell me about that. I think it's funny you asked that because after I started working at OWL, I realized that that dialogue was more nascent at Kellogg than I would like, which is why when I, I came back for the second year and had a bit more time because I'd gotten the offer and could really kind of reflect on the rest of the MBA experience, um, that's when I founded the EdTech MBA community, which which the whole kind of impetus was bridging the dialogue between other graduate programs so that if a student was, say, at a program that only had one other student excited about a tech, they could meet 
hundreds and thousands of others so that they would still be propelled to enter the ecosystem because it is hard being one of hundreds of students talking about it and feeling like you're alone and maybe the industry isn't big enough or exciting enough that maybe I should rethink this. And so now there's 1,200 graduate students in the community all focused on ed tech. So um, hopefully can can kind of help propel that dialogue through through that now. So yes. Okay, time out because I asked you what steps you took to end up at Owl and like to get that going, and your your humility is shining through. Is you're like, oh, you know, I talked to people, I got this job or whatever. But you also you founded a community that now has twelve hundred members who are all MBA students or previous. Who exactly subscribes to this? Yeah, so it's any graduate student. It started out as MBA, and then of course there's graduate schools of education, there's masters of of data science, and so many other programs that have a tech interest. So um, any current or incoming graduate student can be a member. And now that I started in 2021, it has a couple classes of, of alumni too, which has been really interesting to see how that has evolved and, and how the dialogue has changed. But um, it, yeah, it, it continues to grow and our kind of main initiatives are actually matching these graduate students to edtech startups for internships so that that career opportunity gets started because it's honestly just hard to get into the tech industry, even if you're super passionate about. So we've been able to match more than 60 students from our first two cohorts currently doing the fall 2023 fellowship now, and then also bringing in speakers like we had Jesse Willie Wilson from Dreambox and Arnie Duncan, um, Dan Rosenzweig from Chegg, lots of top leaders to kind of speak to the community to re-inspire and reinvigorate their passion so that they are reminded of why they got interested in the first first place and hopefully stick with it. Are you saying that it's uniquely difficult to get into ed tech as compared to other tech companies or anything else? I think it depends on the MBA environment, but a lot of graduate schools have job boards and they're they're really inundated with like big tech opportunities, consulting opportunities, maybe some banking opportunities. And and you see the ease in which you could go onto the job board and just kind of apply for maybe it's a fintech, maybe it's health tech, because there's just simply more of those opportunities often at that stage. And so I think because ed tech often takes that extra step or extra five steps of getting into it, it generally has the industry losing a lot of people that are very dedicated to it, but just that entry path is a bit more difficult to find. So the short answer is yes, I, I do think it's generally more difficult to, to get into it. It's interesting you say that. So I had um, kind of the opposite experience in that uh, Kellogg sometimes reaches out to me and so does Stanford um, to talk to people who are interested in ed tech to see if like an internship might work out or something. And my experience with the, and I've only talked to a handful, but the handful that I got to speak with was they weren't really sure where in ed tech they belonged. They were kind of like, I know that I care. I, I think the industry is exciting. Kind of like where Al was, it feels like 10 years ago, right? Al was just like getting started and, and they knew something was coming, but not quite sure why. And, I, and I'm just curious, how do, if you're interested, even passionate about ed tech, how do you find like a good spot for you? What, what should you kind of think through? Who should you talk to? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, hopefully the ed tech MBA community is helping some people do that. But I, I think internships are really kind of the, the answer there. And and it is because like when you're at an MBA graduate program, it's the last time where you can do kind of that part-time work and get your hands wet with a few different types of projects, a few different types of ed techs, companies in terms of stage, in terms of sector. Um, so I definitely think internships are, are generally the right answer. Obviously, those are hard to access, which is why our fellowship hopefully also helps solve that. Definitely not the answer at all and very open to collaboration and opportunities to improve it. But um, yeah, talking with potential mentors, interning, and just kind of getting that hands-on experience, hopefully in a startup to then learn about where the fit is. That's, that's great. And I think it is good advice to at least talk to people, but maybe also get in there and try it out and see what happens. Um, something at Amira that we often ask people to do is like contract work for a little bit. See if you, see if you really like this because <laughs> it's not always the easiest place to be either. I'm sure that you know all too well. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you one more question about you know kind of this di dynamic that you have where you've you've been in the trenches as a teacher is what we call it. you know like you have been in the work. 
And then also now you're somewhere that I think a lot of people think of as like the pinnacle of ad tech, which is funding. And I'm just curious, how do you feel about that? That like the teachers are the trenches and the and 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 VC work is the funding. Is that what it really feels like to you? Or are they both pretty strenuous, difficult jobs trying to make difference for children? I think there are many differences in terms of the jobs. I'm, I'm no longer working with five-year-olds every, every day. So the, the, the differences are clear. Um, I think the work is, is important and impactful from both lens. It's a very different type of impact, kind of as you touched on the teachers who entered ed tech. It's, it's different. It's not that direct. You're seeing the students learn in front of you. And so I think I've accepted that it really is maybe more of that forest level versus at the trees where you're kind of seeing the overarching trends, you're working with the founders, hoping to help them in any way you can, but you're not like a founder yourself. You're not building the solution yourself. Um, definitely challenges with both <laughs> kind of work, but it, it just in terms of, um, I don't know, education is a challenging world in itself, but definitely feel grateful to be able to create some impact in education through the seat as well. Um, that's I, I love what you just said, because it kind of alludes to my next question. So if anybody who's really into education will tell you it's been a rough summer in that the results are not what we expected, right? We just were coming, we came off of, uh, we're coming from the non-COVID year. So we know about all the learning loss during COVID. We were expecting and hoping for big gains. And instead we saw more loss, um, which I think has been jarring for many of us who who work in schools or have worked in schools. When you think about that, what gives you hope? Like, what are you seeing and saying, I know, but think about this other greatness. So like, what is giving you hope in ed tech and education generally? I think one glimmer of hope from from the seat I'm sitting in is there are so many in smart and innovative people building in the ed tech space. For example, we recently backed a company called Maximal Learning, um, and the CEO was at Microsoft in, in education for two decades, and he kind of left that seat to build an ed tech. And um, Rajan from Chiron Learning left Google for a decade to build an ed tech. And, and you see um, Ian, one of our partners, did a panel with ex-Googlers, and it sounded like a lot of them were excited to build an ed tech. So you're seeing this huge excitement towards the industry. And I think that's just stemming from the opportunity at the and the pace that change can move at, given that AI really does have a lot of potential impact in education and how it can serve children and teachers. So seeing all the innovation getting started, I think gives me a lot of optimism. That is really great. Okay. So tell me this, if there's someone who is maybe an entrepreneur at heart, but has been sitting in a Google seat or a classroom for the last 10 years, but has an idea, what would you tell them is their next step? What should they do? I think if they have an idea, definitely pressure test it with classroom teachers, pressure test it with those who would be the users. I, I think the biggest lesson I've kind of gained is that EdTech Solutions at Work generally have the pain point really pressure tested by the user base. And so, for example, um, Newzella was founded by former teachers, and it was not a particularly sexy solution, kind of figuring out um, how to teach the news and kind of hitting that piece of core curriculum, but it was a huge pain point and huge gap that hadn't yet to been solved. And so I think just pressure testing what that pain point is that they're excited about with that user base is kind of the, the best first step. That's really great. Um, okay. So pressure testing is your next first step. What do you, what keeps you up at night? So if we know like all the cool ideas coming out, really good people working on these cool ideas is what gives you hope. What is the thing that you're like, oof, I don't know about that. I'm worried about this in education ed tech. That's interesting. I feel like I'm, I'm more optimistic than like worried at this point in time. Um, of course it's like from the VC seat, I'm, my worries, am I meeting enough entrepreneurs? Am I, understanding enough of the market. And I, I'm just always trying to, to, to learn what is out there. I think there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration. Like I've seen a lot of, for example, AI story generation companies that pop up in every single corner of the world. I've seen Israel, Europe, Brazil, the States. And so I think 
hopefully we'll find an opportunity for those founders from different corners of the world to learn from each other so that we can work towards a solution faster. Um, that of course comes with time and comes with each of them kind of figuring out their niche in the market. But yeah, hopefully my worry is just, am I, am I meeting enough of the entrepreneurs to kind of partner with them and support them? Okay. So then what's an education? Cause I keep hearing you go back to the problems and the pain points. What's an education problem or pain point that you think someone should be working on, but you haven't heard someone working on it yet? Ooh, that's a good one. Huh. That's, I, I feel like if I had that answer, then maybe I would be trying to, to create the company myself. But I think because I don't, I like to partner with the founders who, who are thinking about it more on a day-to-day -day basis. I think I've had some conversations recently where I, when I was in the classroom and I'm curious, I'm, I think other teachers have this problem too. I feel like a lot of the student data is siloed in many ways. So Dreambox Learning has a student data on math. Lexia and Raz Kids has kind of the student data on reading. And it's or, hard. Or Amira. Uh, and Amira, exactly. <laughs> of course, my apologies. The, the best one. And it's hard for teachers to get a high level understanding of where students' gaps are and to parse out all the data from all the different ed tech tools to then deliver that understanding into the classroom. So I, I don't know what the right solution is because there's a reason why there are different ed tech tools and data is proprietary and has a lot of moats around it. But I think for teachers to kind of implement what they learn through the tech lens, I think is an opportunity that still waiting to kind of see how that can be integrated. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things that you're hitting on is what we know about students is that often all of these things, while they're siloed, actually are all interacting around kids, right? Like that if we could actually have all this information, I think the one thing I heard you mentioned like math and English, but like social emotional too, like where, where are they there? Um, and, and the other different competencies that are all interacting and, and leading to their results, right? And so I, I think that I, I don't have a solution either, but I think you are hitting on something that I remember as a teacher being a problem. I will also tell you that um, I went to a conference with Digital Promise and we asked um, teachers at that conference, like, what's a, what's a real pain point that you have on a daily basis that no one's trying to solve? And you know what they said? Was taking attendance in high schools. Mm -hmm. But attendance for classes, it takes 10 minutes of every class. Teachers get it wrong. Kids are missing. All of those things happen. I was like, huh, that seems like small enough that maybe we could solve that, right? I think at one point someone was talking about putting serial numbers on kids' shoes or something. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how that would go with data privacy. But I thought that was interesting that that's what they came up with. Um, okay, so... We've talked about what's keeping you up at night. We talked about problems that you see. We talked about what gives you hope. Um, when you get really excited about a company, like what is what's the gut check? What happens for you that you're like, this is this is this is something cool? Yeah, I think I mean gut reactions are so funny because it's so hard to know if they're accurate. It's so hard to know where that gut reaction is coming from because, of course, we have a team of investors with, who have such different perspectives and such different backgrounds. I think when that gut reaction happens, it's of course the founder and the team. I, I think you can just tell when they care so deeply about the problem they're solving and when they will really do anything for the business and really it's, it's in their core that they're gonna help students access, for example, healthcare in the school setting, for example, Hazel Health and a recent investment in Brazil, or they they will wake up each morning thinking about that problem. Um, and it's really evident just by how they talk about their vision and how they talk about the long-term product roadmap. And so I think that continues to be a common thread. So always excited to kind of see that founder drive and passion. That's awesome. All right, I'm gonna ask you two more questions and then we're gonna move to your rapid fire. So if a teacher, and many teachers listen to our show, if a teacher is listening and they wish to pivot into ed tech, what would you say their next steps are? Yes. It's hard because I feel like I took a slightly unique path in that I did business school, which I don't think is the answer for everyone by many means. Um, I, I think I've heard tips from many different people, and I'm always really impressed by how open people are. For example, um, Dan Carroll from Chegg, he's written a great article on this. Jack from, um, uh, sorry, Dan Carroll from Clever and Jack from 
check. There we go. Have both written articles on this that I can share with you to kind of spread as well. But I think when it comes to using ed tech in the classroom, you can teachers probably are the perfect user and under perfect viewpoint to understand what is missing in the product and understand what is working in the product. And so kind of being able to synthesize those thoughts into just maybe bullets on what a product team can be working on or what customer support is doing wrong or maybe just opportunities of product expansion, I think is a great stepping stone and could be a great kind of bullets to share to a future employer um, is like one kind of tactical step. But I think that is so dependent on if they want to work in K-12 ed tech or higher education ed tech, or if that ed tech is relevant to, to the seat they're currently sitting in. But um, yes, definitely we'll, we'll also share the, the articles that I've read that I think do are more comprehensive in their feedback and advice. That's yeah, that's great. And I, Dan Carroll, I'm a big fan of, he was on the panel I was on and he, he was a teacher who thought, you know what, we need a single sign on portal. Like this, this just makes sense. Um, so it's, he's, he's one of those great, incredibly smart, talented and humble examples. So I'm so glad that you, you brought him here, um, by saying that. Okay. And then, so, so that's kind of, you know, the advice for a teacher, someone who's an ed tech, who wishes they could get more insights from a teacher, from teachers generally, what would, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I feel like that's kind of always the, like a question and I don't have the perfect answer to it. If anyone has better answers, I would love them because I feel like I'm always trying to find ways to connect our entrepreneurs with teachers because it's so important. I, I wish I had a better answer. I, I don't necessarily. I mean, I think it's just like looking in local communities, looking in personal networks. Maybe you can post on LinkedIn and try to find teachers that way. I know there are a few teacher communities that kind of have popped up across LinkedIn. I know there's like TikTok communities of teachers and teacher tools, but I don't have the perfect answer, but very open to, to hearing kind of where this community fit. But I think you're saying something that is very true is that a lot of companies want insights from teachers. They want to work with them and that making that connection hasn't been as easy. You would think 2 million teachers, there's obviously one at the school down the street from you, but still it's really hard to get the time because I think what, what you're really might be hitting on is teachers are busy. Um, I know I recently explained to my engineers, like how, I asked them, I was like, how many hours a day do you spend in front of a computer? And they're like, I don't know, nine, right? Let's say nine or 10 hours. He said for a kindergarten teacher, it's about 25 minutes and maybe right? Like, and it's quick. They're like in and out. So if you sent them a survey that takes 25 minutes, all of their computer time, they just gave to you. It was a huge donation, right? And so being able to understand that dynamic that teachers aren't spending all day in a cubicle in front of a, in front of a computer. And I think it's a really, if you've never been in a classroom to understand what that day is really like is, is really hard. Um, all right. Rapid fire questions. There are five and then you are out of here, but thank you so much. It has been great to hear your story again, humble, just kind of sharing it so lightly, all the things that you've done. Um, and we're so lucky to talk to you. So the first one is the podcast is called more than a test at Amira. We called it more than a test because we believe our assessment is, you know, the next generation of assessments and that it doesn't happen three times a, a year. It happens every single day, but every guest hears more than a test and thinks of something different. So when you heard more than a test, what did you think of? That's a great question. Um, I think it maybe just is identifying that learning is like much larger than an exam. And I think there's learning for an exam and learning for learning. And there's honestly a pretty big difference between those. And so um, hopefully this podcast is helping people learn because they want to learn. So possibly uh, uh, one interpretation. I hope that too. All right. A literary moment in your life. So a moment where if you and a book that you think was really memorable or changed you in some way. I think this is more with my students than with myself, just having been able to sit in that seat. But there was one student who loved the solar system and kind of went from only being able to look at the photos to just very distinctly remember that first ability to sound out the word planet and kind of really start to to read the book that she had held so many times. And so I think that those moments of just like seeing that transformation um, in front of my eyes and just being able to see students finally be able to learn what they're so excited about is, is what has stuck with me. That's really great. I really love that story. Thanks for bringing your classroom in. 
All right, a piece of of technology that you really love or you're excited about. Yes. Hmm. This is a great question. I mean, I'll say I feel like Chiron Learning, once again, there's just something <laughs> there. And it's really exciting to see what one-to-one tutoring could look like. And and I think it's very top of mind because that was like the meeting right before this. We were watching the demo, but there's a lot of technology kind of popping up all over um, that I'm excited about right now. You're going to have to send this podcast to their founder because I think this is the fourth time they've gotten their, their oh, mention boy. in here. Yes. So he needs yes. to come on next for this. Yes, good timing. <laughs> well, that's great. Right before this. But also you believe in it, right? And that's what the point of this is, is to have a conversation about what you believe in because you see everything, right? You see all the products that are coming through. So I appreciate that. Um, that was your technology. So the best advice you've ever been given? When I was debating if I should apply to business school, my dad said the best choices in life come from giving yourself the best options. And I think that really defined um, my decision to apply because you you can't make the choice if you don't have the option to make the choice off of. So really that, that really impacted my life and kind of stuck with me. I really love that. I'm going to keep it too. Thank you for that. Um, and one book everyone should read. I, I thought about this one. I really loved the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I, it just, I was so encapsulated by all of the many stories of kind of how different leaders and intellectuals rose to success and success in quotes here. No one can see my fingers except you. Um, and just the the backstory of the 10,000 hours plus all of the other circumstances. I, I think it's just a really humbling and interesting set of stories. I always, I, I could read the chapter about the Beatles every day, I think, you know, and every day I find it so interesting, right? This thing that we all remember as you know, people like thousands of people all in these stadiums to see them started like in this little, you know, basement German <laughs> pub kind of thing. So I think that's, I think that's a really good answer. Well, thank you so much for being here today. It's been fun talking to you. Thank you for all the work you do in ed tech. Um, and thanks for being part of our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on the more than a test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.